there would be plenty. And my, my own mind traveled back to Psalm 91, uh, normally immediately applied to Christ because of the temptation of the devil, but uh, really belonging to both the head and the body. I'll just read to you these verses from Psalm 91. The psalm is in general about God's protection of his people. Beginning with verse 10, There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. We should be clear. We know of a surety in the scriptures that God preserves his people. And in the preservation of his people, he can do this in a great many ways. He can preserve his people immediately by his own strength and power without any means, without intervening, any uh, intermediate or intervening means, but immediately by his own power. Or he can do it by means. And uh, the means at his disposal are nearly infinite in their variety. In other words, he is a God of unlimited means and variables. In this way, he is called the Lord of hosts in the accomplishment of his uh, purposes and in the defense of his people. He can act immediately, but he can also use rivers, mountains, trees, and caves to protect his people. You remember he brought his people out of Egypt and he used things like locusts and frogs, light and darkness and such things. But among the means that he uses in the protection of his people are these mighty angels. Something for you to take away And I hope you will take it away as a comfort. In this life, as a child of God, you do not so much as strike your foot against a stone apart from God's good pleasure for your own good and spiritual welfare. Because the angels of God have been commissioned to prevent it otherwise. In other words, if it's not for his glory and for your good, you won't so much as strike your foot against a stone. These magnificent angels have been commissioned to prevent it. There will be no needless suffering, no needless hardship for God's children. And in this, uh, the psalm says we are kept in all of our ways. Most of you probably know by now, um, we have a... uh, a remarkable instance of God's preservation of his children. Uh, uh, the stories are present with us this morning after having had a terrible uh, car accident, a head-on collision, and they were preserved by the remarkable power of God, for the most part, none the worse for wear. And you say, well, how did God do that? And we can't say that we know for sure. But we do know for sure that he did. And the scriptures teach that he does use angels for such things. We don't know that he used angels in this particular case. But we do know that God does use angels for these sorts of things. And we ought to take it away for our comfort. 
moment to reflect upon these things and that these mighty beings have been employed for our good, our well-being, our preservation in this, uh, in this world. We shouldn't be surprised with their uh, worship in view and uh, with their service to the church in view to, uh, that we can also go on and say that they attend upon the church. They are present with her. They attend upon the church's work. Even as uh, at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, they closely attended upon Christ and took very careful notice of everything that was done for the accomplishment of redemption as a fresh revelation, a fresh discovery of God's mercy to fallen men. They closely attended upon those uh, events as, um, as interested in this new revelation. And so we shouldn't be surprised to find in the scriptures they are portrayed as delighting in the doctrine of the gospel. They have always been interested in the church's preaching and teaching as it is faithful to revelation. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter chapter 1 beginning in verse 11 we break in mid thought as Peter is describing the prophets of the old administration and their activity as prophets searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. When the prophets of old would declare the revelation of God when they would utter those solemn words thus saith the Lord the angels were intensely interested as those that desired to look into these things and anxiously awaited that time when the prophecies would be fulfilled and there would be a fuller revelation of God's saving purposes towards his church and the incarnation of Jesus Christ and the advancement of the gospel under the apostles they desired to look into these things they delight in the doctrine of the gospel and so we ought not to be surprised that they also delight to be witnesses of the application of that salvation Luke chapter 15 verse 10 likewise I say unto you there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth so they rejoice with a holy rejoicing when they uh, are witnesses of even a single sinner repenting and redemption being applied to such a one. So they attend upon the church's work uh, uh, in the ministering of the gospel. 
And they also attend upon her worship. In Revelation chapter 5, we have an immediate proof text. We have a spiritual view of the church worshiping. And we have the presence of the angels joining in. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 11, concerning head coverings, the Apostle Paul gives this reason for this cause of the women to have power on the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. This is a very difficult phrase because Paul doesn't immediately explain what he means. But by comparing Scripture with Scripture, if we can tell what he means at all, it no doubt has a reference to this, that the angels are present at the worship of the people of God. We can't say that they're present at every service. Perhaps they are. Maybe they're not. But we know that this is their regular habit. Uh, And no doubt we uh, ourselves have visitations from angels from time to time, or perhaps all of the time, as they take notice of these things. They are present with us. I hope that by way of application, we might come to a more spiritual view of the worship of the church. The worship of the church is humble in its externals. But what glory for those who have spiritual eyes to see it. It reminds me of uh, Elisha and his servant. You remember uh, there was an approaching, threatening army. And there's Elisha with his servant. And the servant is quite distressed. And Elisha simply says, there are more with us than are with them. You ought not to be so fretful. But of course, the, um, the servant can't understand what he's saying or what he means. And then Elisha says, open his eyes so that he might see. And he saw the angelic host and the chariots of the Lord prepared for the defense of God's people. But he needed the eyes to see it. We shouldn't expect um, any sort of physical vision or sight, but we must see these things with the eyes of faith and what glory we will behold when we do. A spiritual sight of living and eternal souls, the heirs of salvation involved in a spiritual and heavenly exercise, surrounded by a company of engaged angels, angels participating and interested, and all in a spiritual communion with a divine, eternal, infinite, and unchangeable spirit. If we had eyes to see this, our assemblies would no longer seem so humble but we would know what it means to have entered into the throne of the living, throne room of the living God and of the eternal King. And if we could, how would our assembly appear to us then? If we're going to attain to the spiritual sight, we must exercise ourselves and must retrain our thinking. And bringing this sermon series to a close, I thought we might consider the angels in the final judgment, the end of the matter. And most of this will be so familiar to you that we won't need to 
stay for very long on any one point. Remember, in this age of eschatological speculation, there are four things that you need to know before you worry with any of the other things. These are the four things that are most needful in eschatology. First, that Jesus Christ is coming again. Remember His return. Second, when He comes again, He will raise the dead. So that's second, the resurrection of the dead. Third, having raised the dead, there will be the final judgment. Resurrection, return, final judgment, and finally, the eternal state. After the judgment, there is an eternal heaven and an eternal hell. Angels are portrayed as being very active in all of this as well. Very active at the end of the age. At Christ's return, he is portrayed throughout the scriptures as returning with an innumerable company of holy angels. The references being so many, it's um, probably not necessary to cite any. In his return, he is seen to be a glorious king with a vast retinue. And he's got a large number of attendants. At his descent, there is the shout of the archangel. And Jesus Christ, by his power, raises the dead to life, both the just and the unjust. The angels are also portrayed as being involved in the final judgment. Christ, as judge, separates the righteous and the wicked, the sheep and the goats, the wheat and the tares. And angels are portrayed in the scriptures participating in that work of separation. Christ judges, but they seem in some way that is very difficult for us to understand at this point, but they seem to execute or implement the separation. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Again, another interesting exercise for the afternoon hours. Matthew chapter 13 uh, relates the, the parables of the kingdom. And these ideas are repeated over and over again. And with each repetition, they take on greater fullness and more light. But we'll look at just one example. Matthew chapter 13, verse 41. The Son of Man shall send forth His angels, and they shall gather out of His kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity. And shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. This is portrayed in verse 30 as the angels gathering the wheat into the barns. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. So the angels are involved in the work of separation. Christ judges and declares the separation. And then the angels, in some way that we can scarcely understand at this point, implement that separation. The righteous are likened unto wheat that are gathered up by the angels into God's barn and storehouse. And the wicked are gathered up like tares 
to be burned in the fire of hell. We also know that God's elect children will participate in the judgment of angels. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul reproves the Corinthians for going to law one against another before heathen magistrates. And he says, there's coming a time when you will judge angels. Can you not judge between men in the simplest earthly matters? We know at least this much from that text in Corinthians, that when Jesus Christ judges the fallen angels, Satan and his demons, we will be present and concurring in that judgment. Christ will declare it and we will give a solemn Amen. And they will be consigned to their destruction. Although this is a little bit less certain, but possible, it's it's possible that the elect angels will also be confirmed at that point, or their righteousness and obedience declared, although uh, although all the scripture says in a general way that we will be involved in the judging of angels. So this will at least involve the condemnation of the evil angels, but perhaps also a declaration of the righteousness of the elect angels. And finally, concerning the eternal state, the holy angels will go to be with God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the church forever and ever. This is characterized as the general assembly of the firstborn in Hebrews chapter 12. And there angels will forever um, enjoy the delights of heaven, the presence of God. But the evil angels at the end will enter into a consummate judgment. Turn with me to the book of Jude. The book of Jude, verses 6 and 7. And the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. In verse 6 we see that the judgment of the demonic hosts is twofold. First of all, they have been locked up in what are characterized as everlasting chains. That's step one with respect to their judgment, and it is already a present reality. But there is a second step. They have been reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. So their judgment has not yet been completed or perfected, but their judgment will be completed at the final judgment. It's not easy to say exactly what it means for them to be locked up in these chains. 
I say it's difficult to say what it might mean because this locking up in chains does not mean that they do not remain active. They clearly do remain active in the world of men. But we could probably say at least this much, that these chains uh, make them miserable. They are vexed by the encumbrance of them. Who knows that they are not already suffering great horrors in anticipation of the coming judgment. But we also know that they are strictly bound and limited by God's providence. They are seething and ready to do great wickedness, but God does have them in very tight chains indeed, and they are not permitted to work or actualize any more evil than what He is pleased to permit for His own glory and for the good of His people. And there can be little doubt that this is a most vexing judgment for them to know that all of the evil that they intend against God's people will ultimately be for their good and well-being. But after this, they go to consummate and perfected horrors, pains, and miseries in eternal fire. Uh, Characterized in verse 7 as the vengeance of eternal fire. Horrors uh, so great that they're beyond our finding out. Like the burning of the flesh in fire and its miseries and yet... A flesh that's never consumed and a fire that never ends but goes on and on and on. So will these spiritual beings suffer forever in a spiritual way that is beyond our knowing, beyond our finding out. By way of application, there is no redemption that has been provided for the angels And the destinies of both parties is already sure. The elect have already entered into that heavenly and blessed state and are simply working and waiting for the perfection of the church. The end of the wicked is also a sure and certain thing, and there will be no reversal and no change of state, but they are simply going to move from one misery to perfect misery. It is not so in the world of men. But salvation has been extended to fallen men in a way that it was never extended to the fallen angels. The miseries of hell are set forth to us. Hell is described as a place that was prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew chapter 25. And we hear the uh, admonition of the scripture, why would ye die? when so great a salvation has been provided for men. How unreasonable are we when we love our sins to such an extent that we would love them to our own destructions. Sins from which we never profited anything, as the scriptures say. Why would you continue in these sins from which ye never had any profit? And then the end of the matter, destruction. We see in this the sinfulness of sin and the unreasonableness of sin. Indeed, you might call it a great and profound madness. But consider the happiness of the heavenly company as it's portrayed in Scripture. And as we have it in Revelation chapter 5, the church gathered around the throne of God, delighting in Him. 
and enjoying all of the fruits of the redemption that He purchased for them. And those angels gathered around. What a great and what a happy company that is. If we would act as men and not as animals, we will repent of our sins and believe this Gospel. And I thought that we might sing, uh, by way of conclusion, Psalm 148 in its entirety to the tune Darwal. It's a second rendering, another of the same. This psalm uh, commended itself to my attention as we were preparing for this Lord's Day because it is the song of that happy assembly. The angels are called upon in the first part of the psalm to bless the name of the Most High. And then at the end of the psalm, after all of the creation is portrayed as ringing with the high praise of the Most High, all men of all shapes, sizes, classes, and varieties are called upon to bless the name of the Redeemer. So let us rise and do so. Psalm 148 to the tune.